he's compared companies that he's identified as being conscious companies to the good to great companies that have been very successful. And he's been able to show how the conscious capitalistic companies have been much, much more successful than those good to great companies, both in the shorter term, but much more so in the longer term in that 10 to 20 year uh, time. And that book really goes into a fair bit of detail about why these companies are conscious and what it is that makes them conscious and why, why they have been successful. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. I'm Diana Barnett, the host of The Toxic Fox Show. I appreciate you choosing to spend your time with us. I would really like to know what you're doing right now while listening to The Toxic Fox Show. I know that Moira from Ducks Back, Sustainable Fitness and Food, listens to the podcast while training for a 200 plus walk she's doing later this year. Feel free to share who you are and where you listen to The Toxic Fox Show, either on social media or in the show notes. For those of you who are new to Toxic Fox, the Toxic Fox Show is a podcast for business owners that use their business as a force for good. They're mindful of the impact their business has on multiple stakeholders, and they're conscious entrepreneurs. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Now, here's a question, not a riddle, but a question. What does an ex-council truck, two mates, a bunch of friends, and Africa have in common? The answer? The germination of a global responsible travel business that now, more than a quarter of a century later, has six specialist tour operators and 17 destination management companies, taking over 250,000 travellers to more than 100 countries on all seven continents, and employs more than 1,500 staff in 25 offices around the world. That's Intrepid Travel. My guest today is Jeff Manchester one of the two mates that co-founded Intrepid Travel. Their aim is to create experiences that benefit all the stakeholders, the travellers, staff, communities, and the environment. I started the conversation by asking Jeff, why conscious capitalism and why becoming a B Corp is important to him and Intrepid Travel? I think conscious capitalism is important to us because it really reflects what our business is on about. The um, four pillars of conscious capitalism really uh, reflect our business. And for me personally, I felt a a great affinity with that. And and so it it was important to become involved. And for B Corporation, I think that's important because it's like a certification and, and some acknowledgement that what you're doing has value. You know, there's, there's lots of certifications around the world, not so much for tourism, there's one or two for tourism, but things like fair trade, but they're very much focused on the product uh, yep. or the service, whereas B Corporation is about the whole organisation, the way it behaves, what it does, everything about it. And so um, we felt like that really was a value to both to us and to um our customers and consumers and our other organisations is, is being able to say, yes, Intrepid um, is an organisation that um, does good in the world. Yeah, so that's why we've become involved in both of those and why they're important. And, and I think for, in terms of B Corporation, 
is it's got a, a very strong uh, future and, and it really re- is sort of reflective that more and more companies will become B corporations and will need to become B corporations because the consumer will become more and more aware of the way companies act and will use that more in their decision-making. And, and B corporation certification is really uh, assisting, well, will really assist the consumer in, in deciding who they want to spend their money with. Right. So you're in the process of getting your B Corp. What advice would you give to anyone that's starting out now, wanting to go down that track? Um, oh, look, I think my advice now is to have a look at it because you you don't need to pay anything. You can just go and do a sort of a a, a very short assessment for yourself, which will, will give you an idea of where you are, but also give you an idea of what sort of expectations there are on you to become a certified B Corp. So have a good look at it and then start planning around it so that whether you want to do it immediately, put a lot of effort into becoming B Corp immediately or see it as a something that will take a couple of years, um, it doesn't really matter, but just that you're, what you're doing in the future has that in mind and you're creating policies and procedures and, and a culture, I guess, which, which aligns with it. Right. Okay. Can I just go back to the um, conscious uh, capitalism? You said there were four pillars. For those that don't know what conscious capitalism is, can you explain what the four pillars are and how they apply to your organisation? Sure. So the first pillar is um, having a purpose beyond profit. And for us, we've never seen that we're here just to make money. Um, most people who create a business don't want to, don't do it just to make money. They do it because they have some creative idea of a service or product that they want to release. And for us, it's giving people the best travel experience ever. Uh, and, and companies that are being becoming successful are more successful are really companies that have identified and are acting with a purpose beyond profit. And, and you know, to exemplify that a bit, um, Bill Gates didn't start Microsoft to become a billionaire. He started Microsoft to change the way we all use computers and he was very successful at it and became a billionaire as a result of it. So any company can have a purpose uh, beyond making profit and, and needs to. But within the conscious capitalism, it's actually beyond just even that. It's actually making a difference. To Is there a sort of a social responsibility with it or that's not? Uh, not necess- no, not necessarily. And I think that comes up in the, the next p- pillar and, uh, and, and the next one is stakeholder orientation. And that's where I guess social responsibility comes in because stakeholder orientation is about not you winning and someone else losing. It's about win, 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 that, that um, your, your customers can win, your suppliers can win, your distributors can win, the society where you work can benefit from what you're doing. And and that you're not damaging uh, the environment as well, which is which effectively is a stakeholder for, for the activities of any organisation. Mm-hmm. So that's one and two. So three pillars? So the third one is, is conscious leadership. And that's about saying that um, as, a, as a leader or manager, you have a, a very strong influence on the people who are um, looking up to you or reporting directly to you and that therefore you have a responsibility to ensure that you're having a positive impact on their lives. And leadership no longer needs to be about that 
command and control uh, type relationship um, and very much exemplified by um, comparing business to war. There's so many books that do that and, and are, are based on that premise of com- command and control. Conscious leadership is much more about leading from behind and being there to support the people uh, who work with you, uh, improve their skills, improve their abilities, give them the opportunity to, to develop and, and move on in their careers, and you being the one who, who's there um, to assist in, in that happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. And number four? And the, the fourth one is uh, around culture and the the classic statement, um, who I can't remember whose statement it is, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what that's saying is that companies have a very, very big focus on, on their strategy and the um, implementation of their strategy. But if you don't have buy-in from your people um, and you don't have the culture that, that they want to be in the organisation and contribute to the organisation, well, you've got no hope really of implementing your strategy. So culture really is, at, we would say, is at the crux of everything you do. I mean, all the all the four pillars are, 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 are very important, but culture is, um, oh, I'm finding hard to put into words, but just at the core of everything you do, um, yep. because the people are involved, culture is is a very healthy culture is very important for, for getting things done within a business. Okay, so if we take that, how does how does Intrepid encourage use culture, encourage their staff and stakeholders in, internally to help them achieve their purpose? Okay, I guess for us we have a very strong focus on culture and sometimes a lot of what you do in your culture is just things that happen within the company and some things are, are things that you really work on and like for instance, one which is sort of the crossover between leadership and culture is that we really encourage all our managers to ensure that they're having you know one-on-one review meetings regularly with all their all the people who report to them, um, and that any issues that, that come up that the manager is the one handling them. It's not as though they hand over to your HR department to handle anything that's difficult. Uh, the, the manager is the one who is has full responsibility that the HR department will assist them, um, but, but they're the one who who has that frontline uh, responsibility to develop their people and solve any issues where where a relationship isn't going along properly. How do you manage that? Because you've got people on the ground here. Because you're particularly interest, interesting from this perspective is because you've got people on the ground in Australia, and then you've got people on the ground. In different countries, with diff- coming from different cultures, how does that all get managed? I guess, I guess when we set up, so we have we have operations in about twenty five uh, countries around the world, and when we're setting up those businesses, we very much set them up in a way that reflects our culture, which is very much that we has a, have a, a casual working environment, but that people take responsibility for their for their um, their work themselves. That uh, it's not command and control, and that is a really difficult one in a lot of countries where people are only used to doing what their manager tells them to do. Yeah, and and so that that's one that we have to work on very hard over a period of years to give give people the understanding that 
they can think for themselves and the confidence they can go out and make decisions. And if they make the wrong decision, well, then they're not going to get sacked. It's just a learning experience and we move on from it and, um, and, and continue to grow. So how do you employ the right people for the culture? Well, that? that's right. And, and that's, that goes back another step to the, the, the recruitment drive. And the recruitment is all about recruiting for culture, much more so than recruiting for skills. So, And we've had lots of instances where we have a very highly skilled IT person, perhaps, or finance person who is just the, the best person to pick from that point of view. But if they're not culturally the right person, well, it just doesn't work. So there's much more focus on, on getting culturally correct people because you can teach them what you need them to be able to do and, and that's much more valuable to the business in the in the long run than having someone who's fully capable immediately but then uh, the issues around culture uh, continue to go on for a long, long time. So, so but that recruiting for culture is you know isn't easily said exactly how it's done, but it's it's very much just having a, a discussion with um, each individual about about what's important to them uh, in their lives. I guess to put it simply. Mm-hmm. What's your process with that? Um, is it that you you go through referrals or you just put an ad out there and people come to you, and then you've got sort of tick the box of certain things that they. Think? Um, yeah, look, we tend to we tend to have people coming to us uh, fairly regularly uh, anyway. But if we've got a particular job, we'll advertise it both in the media and also on our website. There's a lot of people look there, and then um, you know, usually we get a huge number of applications uh, now. And, I'd imagine. <laughs> and so it's it's a matter of looking through the applications for and trying to select people who seem like they're, they're more in line with this. But then when it comes to the interviewing process, really focusing on them showing showing what they've done in the past in relation to certain circumstances. So rather than just asking opinions, it's, it's asking for examples of things. Uh-huh. And that might be an example uh, for, an, for someone who is a manager, an example of where they've had a, a, a staff member who has been in a difficult situation and what they've actually done in that situation rather than some theoretical idea of what you might do. Right. Okay. Okay. So, look, I just want to now take the conversation back to when you – because we've gone through the four pillars and I just followed that track. But I want to take it back to when you started the business. Mm -hmm. You started with a – you're a co-founder, so there was only two of you. Yep. I mean, how did the whole idea start and what was your great vision at the time? Was it to be as big as you are now or was it to be just Australian or um, or can you remember? <laughs> uh, sort of, I think. Look, um, why we started was that we felt there was a gap in the market for someone to offer a style of travel that is more or less like organised backpacking. So we felt that there was... You know, this is back in 1989 when we started, and you know, backpacking was huge uh, back in those days, even. And but we felt like there must be a lot of people around who weren't quite confident enough to go backpacking for themselves. And what were they going to do? Were they um, uh, condemned to a life of going on uh, great huge bus tours or just going to resorts? And so we had this idea of creating a style of travel that was. Um, Travelling essentially like backpackers do, but staying in slightly better accommodation um, and having 
a group of people around you and a leader who isn't your classic tour guide, who's there much more to make the logistics happen and be able to help you learn about the country you're visiting. Mm -hmm. And it was also about the realisation that a lot of tourism isolates people from the country they're actually visiting. And we wanted people to really experience the country they're visiting, warts and all. So, so using as much public transport as much as possible and staying in small locally owned hotels or guest houses and having the opportunity to engage with local people to learn about their way of life and, and to learn about their, their history, their culture, their religion, their food, everything as much as possible about that country so you come back, come back with a greater understanding. Yeah. So you originally went into being sort of tours for back, you know, in that direction. When did the pivot and what was the pivot that came to transition into being a responsible tour operator or travel operator? Right. I, from, from the time we started, we felt like we were going to be travelling to developing countries because when we started, um, our first destination was Thailand and our initial vision, to go back to that question, was being an operator of tours in Southeast Asia and that later became Asia and later became worldwide. But we felt like we're going to be taking people to Thailand, we should give something back to that country. And so even before we were profitable as a company, definitely before um, Daryl and I were taking a salary, we, we had started supporting a, a couple of very small organisations in, in Thailand that, that were doing uh, good work as, as NGOs. Right. And so that was just sort of very started. But then our, our second ever employee, um, she, she was very strong on the concept of responsible travel and we more or less gave her head to run with it. And that really, and she really drove that for the first couple of years in terms of responsible travel in terms of ensuring that our travellers learnt about um, appropriate behaviour in the country of visiting, about dressing appropriately, about the way you talk to local people, um, what you would do if you go into, into a Buddhist temple, about, um, you know, simple things like not littering beaches or not littering uh, rainforests and things like that. And, you know, over the years we gradually got more sophisticated in the things that we addressed um, and, you know, to the extent of, of being responsible in using small local uh, people for services that we needed, um, such as hotels, rather than uh, big multinationals, where the benefit of tourism to that country would just go out of the go out of the country again, rather than uh, rather than stay there. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you've got some projects that you work on, i.e., that you're passionate about. So the earthquake helping the re um, the Nepalese back with the tourism back into Nepal and the elephants. How do you decide which projects you're going to pursue? Yeah, as a business, as a business, we feel we've got to um, only approach projects that are directly relevant for us. Because yep. um, otherwise, you just we feel like this business will be just too open for getting in enormous debate about things that aren't that relevant to us and getting uh, criticised. So um, the elephant one uh, is important to us because 
well, I could talk for half an hour about elephants, but elephant riding just shouldn't be happening uh, because elephants are uh, wild animals, not domesticated animals, and lots of other things. And and so we felt we wanted to stop elephant riding because it was something we were doing, and that a lot of people do elephant riding because they don't know about why you shouldn't do elephant riding. And we felt like that we could really contribute to um, the well-being of elephants by having that. Uh, uh, discussion and, and engagement. So when did the decision come to? So the history of it was that um, through our charity, the Intrepid Foundation, we um, we paid for World Animal Protection to do a study into the, the use of animals in uh, tourism in Thailand. And so they, they studied it and, and found overwhelmingly that Elephants and tigers and primates were very, very badly treated in tourism. So that was in 2010. And over the next couple of years, we reduced elephant riding from our trips. And at first we thought, well, some people thought, well, we won't get anyone wanting to go on our trips if there's no elephant riding. And and while people do love elephant, will love the concept of doing elephant riding, it's not one of their major decision makers. And, and over those couple of years, we found that the trips we took the elephant riding out of didn't lessen in demand compared to the trips that continued with elephant riding. So two years ago, we took elephant riding right out of all our itineraries and uh, continued to engage with World Animal Protection in publicising it and trying to get other companies to to follow uh, and, and remove it as well. And it's beginning to have some success now. And as a topic, it just keeps coming back again and again. So from our point point of view, uh, it's been successful in reducing the elephant running, but it also creates shared value uh, for us in that it's just a fantastic PR tool that puts us in the media uh, on a regular basis. Okay, so taking that one and when you go to, say, Nepal and you've you've gone with seven women, have you gone with any other organisations in Nepal to promote tourism back into Nepal after the earthquake? Yeah, so after the earthquake, we realised while Nepal is uh, not really a a huge destination for us compared to many others, it is fairly iconic sort of adventure travel destination and so we felt like we should support it as we can and uh, and especially as tourism is, is I think, the number one uh, export earner for the country, um, whereas lots of other countries, while tourism is important, it's not quite so important as it is in, in Nepal, and it's a huge employer. And what would likely happen uh, in a situation like this is that people would just put off going to Nepal put going to Nepal out of their minds for two or three years because they just associate it with an earthquake. But we didn't pay for, but we we organised, facilitated for a United Nations body to pay a, an engineering company to to look at the, the trekking trails for damage and to look at a lot of the guest houses along the trekking trails for damage to so that things could get repaired quickly and also really to identify that that by the time the next season started, it all would be fine for, for people going trekking again in Nepal. So, mm-hmm. so so it was going to be okay, but then in an instance like this, most countries would then uh, have their tourism body, which would just spend lots and lots of money going around the world uh, advertising that it's okay to go to that country. But Nepal doesn't have – it has a tourism organisation, but it doesn't have the money to really get out there. So we 
took on ourselves to take some journalists to Nepal and uh, and show them that Nepal was okay for tourism yep. uh, and that people should start coming back. And, and so we've put a, a great effort into that. And while the season that's just finished has been significantly down on a normal season, which is what you'd expect, next season, which starts in September, is already way ahead of a normal season. So, so we've had a lot of success in that. Right. Okay. And so, then the other on. thing, the other part of it is the fundraising part. So we, um, through the Intrepid Foundation, we launched an appeal as soon as the earthquake happened. And within a month, we'd raised $400,000 which is great, and since then that, that's now gone up to $700,000. And that mainly comes from uh, our, our travellers uh, and some of it from Intrepid Travel as well. And so that money is being used to support several organisations in, in, uh, in Nepal. So obviously Seven Women, which you mentioned, which is an uh, amazing organisation that was started by a young girl. She was only 19 at the time, 10 years ago she started, and... Uh, a young girl from Melbourne, and she found these seven disabled women who were, who were trying to survive in the little tin shack, and she's created this uh, not-for-profit that teaches disabled and abused women uh, sewing and knitting and cooking and uh, English, and, and now they're going out into smaller communities around Nepal um, teaching English to women so that they can uh, develop their own lives. Uh-huh. And then as well as that, we support uh, WWF uh, as, a, as a bigger uh, NGO and also Plan International. Plan International has been focusing on rebuilding schools uh, in Nepal. You mentioned the foundation. So how does that sit with the Intrepid Travel itself? Uh, so the foundation is uh, a separate entity, but very closely, but it's run essentially by Intrepid people. So it's a, it's a, um, a charity that raises funds from our travellers and and uh, any donations from our travellers are matched dollar for dollar by Intrepid. Uh, and Intrepid also pays for the, uh, the administration of the foundation. So it's really great that we can say to our donors, no, no, none of your um, donation goes administration. So 100% of your donation goes to the organisation you want to support. And in fact, because Intrepid matches it dollar for dollar, 200% of your donation goes to uh, to these organisations. So Intrepid Foundation raises money from our travellers and also from our, our own staff, and it supports about 55 organisations around the world, and some of them are very small, like um, seven women, or they might be like uh, there's one in Egypt that, that looks after donkeys that have been abused uh, in tourism, or now with no tourism in, in, uh, in Egypt, just donkeys that have been neglected because yep. um, they can't be supported. So we saw lots and lots of small organisations like that, and then we support some bigger international NGOs uh, like uh, Plan International or the Australian Conservation Foundation or um, or Fred Hollows Foundation, which does great work. So, so yeah, two two big areas um, that we support. So, um, can anyone donate to the foundation? Yes, yes, anyone can donate to the foundation. Most of the donors are. Uh, our travellers because we we don't go out trying to compete with every other charity in, in public view. So it's very much our travellers or people on our mailing lists uh, right. who, okay. who donate. And some of them do one-off one donations and some of them do uh, regular donations. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes to the foundation for you. So if anyone you. comes by, they can do that. 
You're listening to Jeff Manchester, a co-founder of Intrepid Travel. And this conversation is sponsored by sevencanaries.com.au. And I'm Diana Barnett, your host. Just going back to your customers, because you've become a responsible travel organization, what percentage of your customers do you track that are coming to you because you do responsible travel? And what percentage actually come to you because you offer really great tour packages? Uh, look, I think that being a responsible travel company, a responsible business is is a factor that, that attracts people to Intrepid, but ultimately most people will choose to travel with whatever organisation because they like the itinerary, the dates of the tour are, are, are suitable for them for, for matching up with their holidays and the, the price is correct. So mm-hmm. they're the most important things, but I guess more and more so people are looking to uh, for whatever they're buying to what the company does and what it represents. So while for us first-time travellers won't necessarily be attracted by us being responsible, it's, it's much more effective for those people returning to travel with us a second, third, fourth time that being responsible becomes more important because they they learn about uh, that from our from our leaders when they're travelling and the information we give them and they like that and they just want to come back and experience it again. So do you track actually what the conversion is or is that a metric that's important to you or you've never really gone down that track? Uh, um, track conversion. Uh, yes, we do in various ways. Like so, so we... We track conversion from, you know, visits to our website to booking on on a website from that point of view. Probably not so much from people rigging up and and then making a booking um, because yep. people ring up for all sorts of reasons. But but yeah, we do track those sorts of factors and, and certainly for a website for for knowing that investment you're putting into. Uh, a website and social media and attracting people to your website um, through your search engine optimization and your paid uh, search and those sorts of things. To know that they're working, you, 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 we really need to be tracking those things. Yeah, sorry, my question wasn't very clear. I meant, I meant, can you see that a percentage of your customers they come to you as just tours and then they convert back into looking more for responsible travel? Is there a way that you uh, can track that? No, not really. I don't think no. Yeah. Um, we can only track it by them coming back to us, not what else they might do. Yeah, and, yeah. But, but we'd like to think that uh, we have some influence on their future decisions and, and, you know, people aren't always going to want to do our type of adventure travel every holiday, And but hopefully next, next time they travel, if they're going to stay in a resort, well, they might think about the impact on that, of that resort on the, the local community. Yep. Now, I, I raised that question because I was talking to another social entity today and she was saying that she actually makes um, skincare and she was saying one of her things is that she gives 50% of her profits t- to poverty projects. And she said, you know, she wants to push that story, but people don't seem to be interested in that story. They're more interested in the product. And 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 uh, we were just talking about ways that you can track whether there's a conversion into and people becoming more aware of the issues that you're pushing, yeah. So that was the reasoning, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, in terms of aware of the issues, um, I think you've got what we do. We look at it as a um, 
a long-term image and of what Intrepid is about. So, you know, any one activity, you, you're not going to get the return. But overall, people learn to trust the brand because of a variety of things that you're doing. And it's not only having a good product, it's also that you're you know, maybe giving away part of your uh, profits to something you believe in. Yeah. Now, um, just want to change the subject again. If you got, were to wind back the clock to the days when you began, what would you do differently? Oh, what would we do differently? Oh, I'm trying to think. So uh, distribution, we wouldn't do things differently because we distribute through the travel industry and direct to the consumer, and we've always believed in that. Um, we quickly found that we needed to go outside of Australia to, to get business um, and we'd most certainly do that again because um, that's been a valuable part of our, our, our the travellers' experience of having people from lots of um, different countries travel. So how did you do that? Uh, well, we went out and found organisation companies in other countries that we could give sort of the, um, the agency rights to sell Intrepid within their country. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then later on, we took that over ourselves and, and went and uh, invested ourselves within those countries and had our own business because that enables you to grow more quickly. And I guess that's one thing we would do. So um, rather than use an agency selling to sell your product in a country, much earlier we would have moved in and invested for ourselves because it was always much more worthwhile to put more money, say, going into a new country, say, like um, – like Canada, for us to um, to really invest heavily in Canada to grow sales there rather than rely on an agent to do that. Because the agent has got many? Because they've got many products, but also because there's not as much benefit for them to invest as there is for us. Right. And so if you go into, you go into Canada, how then you go in and you set up a team solely from Canada or do you bring – someone in from Australia and have the rest of them from Canada? How do you do that? Uh, it would be a mixture. So we'd, we'd try and have most people from Canada, but we'd want uh, want a few from Australia and mainly well, for a couple of things, but the really important one is to ensure that that company has the right culture and has the same culture as we, we the company does here in Australia. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you do for, for being able to set up systems and processes as well. But it's that culture thing that's really important for having someone from here uh, go, go there. Yeah, okay. So if you go back again to that question, what would you do differently? What are three of the three main hurdles or challenges you've the organisation has faced over the years that really come to mind? That And what sort of strategies did you put in place? Were they people or marketing or...? So, look, a big hurdle was in the in the 2000s that we just went from one natural disaster or political issue to another. So we had you know, 9-11 and then we had the barley bombing and then we had bird flu and then there was another barley bombing and then there was SARS and it just kept up, seemed to keep on going on and on. Yep. And, and so we had to learn how to um, overcome those sorts of setbacks and address them really quickly. And we did that, and so we became a much more resilient company for that. From that, what were the learnings from that? Would you have done some sort of pre-planning of crisis management beforehand and preempted that sort of thing happening, or well, certainly not for the early ones because we'd never had it hit us so badly. So we did develop our our responses, and 
you know, and the response would depend on whether it was a one-off incident like a, a bombing or whether it was an incident uh, where there wasn't a, a foreseen end like bird flu that you didn't know whether it was going to last for a few months or a few years. So uh, we yeah, created a, a response to it, but also we knew that we had to build up a war chest of, um, of money sitting there uh, for when times got really bad like that. Right. And did you then take people that had booked into those sort of places onto other holidays or how did you Oh, yes, it? that's right. So you would you would try and offer for them to do something else uh, during that time, yes, as much as possible, or, or defer it and, and travel in six months' time when it was all okay again. Yeah, because holidays are difficult because you book a holiday and you plan for it and it can be, you know, Probably, that's right, because a lot of people only have a certain time they can take holidays, people like teachers. And also now um, people buy um, airline flights where the dates aren't changeable or it costs you a lot of money to change the dates. Right. So if that's the case, what what's the impact on you as a company? Do you just say, well, I, I suppose... <laughs> well, we can't just say good, good bad luck. Yeah, uh, I mean, because people... The, Insurance? That's right. That's the important thing. People, we insist people have to have travel insurance to travel with us because that's the, the best way of addressing it. Because if, if someone's about to travel in two days' time and they can't, we can't give them all their money back in reality because we would soon be broke as a company. So that's where traveling, that's one of the areas where travel insurance is really important. Yes. Right. Do you insist that they have it before they sign up or do you just... Uh, no, look, we don't in reality. In, in, we insist they have it by the time we, they travel, but which we encourage them to take it as soon as they book up because if you become unwell between when you book and when you travel, you could be foregoing all your tour cost, all your airfares, all your accommodation. But if you have travel insurance, that, that will reimburse you generally even if it's before you've travelled. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've digressed there. I yeah, so we, what was the question? So we were thinking of three. Three challenges. That, but that was one of them, and yeah. that's that's been multiple in, in some ways. But any other challenges as an organisation you've faced? Uh, look, I think uh, technology is a huge challenge for us um, because for travel, the travel industry, technologies become so important, along with lots of other industries, but there's been a bit of a focus on travel. And so keeping up with the technology involves huge investment all the time and, mm -hmm. and it doesn't ever seem to stop. And, and so your business model, I, we were talking about this recently because it, we spend so much on technology now that we didn't 20 years ago that the business model's got to change to be able to, to pay for that. Um, yeah, it's about to pay for it. Yeah. And also that it's not necessarily a benefit that's immediate to you. The benefit might be a year or two ahead. Yeah, and it's ant anticipating where technology is going to go. Anticipating where technology go is going to go and selecting the right technology because my experience is that people who, who are selling things to you, they'll, they'll tell you about it, but you don't know the right questions to ask to know whether it's the right thing for you or not. Yeah, so how does somebody get around that if they're... Uh, look, I think, I think for us it was taking, taking the decision to invest in 
expensive, knowledgeable people as early as possible so they can uh, they can help you with that. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So it comes back to culture and and, That's right. and, and culture and also being willing to reinvest in the company and, yeah. and taking that risk to say, look, yes, we've got we've got it. You know, a couple of general IT people, but we need a, a very experienced. Um, very expensive IT person who can go on the journey with us. Yeah. Okay. Now, I have two other questions that sort of in different areas but sort of related. How do two best mates stay two best mates in business over such a long time? What's the secret? Uh, Yes. Uh, I think a lot of it is about um, respecting each other's strengths and weaknesses and being willing to, to not always have your own way and while listening to the other one, um, ultimately coming up with a with a decision that that both of you um, don't necessarily one hundred percent agree with, but can accept and, and accept as a, as the right way to go. Right. Um, and but but I guess underlying that is is having a similar culture yourselves and similar values, mm. uh, and being. Um, and say similar culture and values, uh, and having having a um, similar bel- beliefs in what a company is, as in it's not there just to make profit; it is there to do good. And uh, and for us, thinking long term, I think has been a really important part of it. Not necessarily thinking about how you're going to make money this year, but how how the business is going to continue continue to grow and develop over uh, many many years. So. When you both started, did you sit down and talk about how this was going to work? Well, not really, because you know we were you I only uni. Had one one job, and Daryl only had a couple of jobs, and and I don't think we we're experienced enough to to know that we should be talking about those sorts of things. Yeah, no, it's it's just interesting because there's some best mates that go through and they start business and it just falls apart, and then you guys have just really seemed to have done it really well. Yes, that's right. I'm, that's sure, right. I'm sure you get asked that question all the time. Uh, we do a bit, and it, it, because because I think it is uh, unusual. Um, you see so many that might last a certain amount of time, but not for 27 years. Yeah, um, and and I think it maybe just because we don't take life too seriously, and that we, you know, just happy to to go with the flow to a certain extent. Mm. Uh, well, that's um, something to take on board. For people, quite another area that I wanted to just ask you about was partnerships and that sort of thing in transition in merging. Because you you went with Peak or that organisation a couple of years back. Yeah, no, we created Peak. So Peak was a creation between us and a big uh, publicly listed travel company out of the UK called Tui T U I. Yep, and. Tui wanted to own Intrepid because it could see us as being very successful, um, but we didn't want to sell it. So what we did in the end was create create Peak, and we put Intrepid in, and they put in about ten adventure travel companies that they already owned. Right. And but the management of that came from London to Melbourne, and, and really Peak was run essentially by Intrepid people. And for a while, Peak didn't performed terribly well, which was partly due to internal factors and partly due to external factors. And what became apparent was that uh, being a publicly listed company, they were most concerned about 
their next quarter results. And so if we weren't doing so well, then our uh, expenditure had to be slashed. Whereas for Daryl and I, we think much longer term. And if you have a bad quarter, well, then you've got to uh, do your sales and marketing better in the next quarter to to make sure you don't get any worse or that you catch up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that dichotomy between them thinking in a short-term way and us thinking in a long-term way didn't work. And we both could see that it wasn't the right partnership, and so we quite amicably separated. Right. So what's the, the learning for that for other people when they're looking at going into partnerships and strategic alliances? Uh, look, a very, um, a very easy part of it is culture. So that organisation had a different culture from us. Yep. Was what it all comes down to, but but then yes, culture is a very important part. But also, um, what outlook you you have, um, what are what are the goals of the organisation? You know, all, all sorts of more other things are involved. So going into it, being a bit more diligent about your what the culture is and the the different. Um, yeah, maybe being a bit more diligent. I mean, it's it's a very difficult thing because. The businesses that were merged in with ours, they have very similar cultures to us. But it, so it was suitable to create the entity from that point of view and, and had a lot of success from that point of view. But the the overarching owner yeah. uh, was was where it was different. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess it comes down to um, a lot of it to private business, uh, public business. Yeah. So if you're a private business, you can think, Long term, whereas a public business, someone can do a bit for most, um, it's much more shorter term outlook. So, does that mean that Intrepid Travel won't be looking at going, being listing, or they're still going to, they're going to still uh, look at listing? I uh, look, uh, now that we're a privately owned company, again, we haven't, they haven't really addressed, you know, that as a long term issue, but, but it'd be fairly unlikely that we would be, look at, um, at listing, yes. Yeah. Yeah, just that experience of, you know, not being directly listed but being involved with the listed company and and the pressure it puts on and the demand for reporting is just outrageous. So it costs a lot of money to be a listed company. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward, where, where is Intrepid going? You know, what, what sort of things does Intrepid want to achieve? Look, um, we already travel to about 120 countries around the world. So it's not a matter of going to new countries, but it's a matter of different, doing new styles of travel. Mm-hmm. So um, while we're called an adventure travel company, we're about uh, experiences. It's, it's you know, We're an experiential travel company. And uh, it's interesting because the whole market is moving towards um, experiences rather than sightseeing. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's it's developing new types of experiences. So, for instance, we run um, family trips now. So group trips, 16 people, it might be three or four families, and that's growing very quickly. We're doing um, sailing trips where have a small group of eight to 12 people can go sailing on a yacht which people might have wanted to do but never had the opportunity to ha- organise their own group of people. So they can just be one person going sailing uh, yep. in, in some quite amazing places. Um, we've got our food tours, which are, which are growing very, very quickly with food being such a, a popular pastime now 
and interest yep. for people. And we're so and we've we've just run our first ever trip to North Korea. And during that trip, some of the people on the trip ran in the North Korean marathon. And so we've never done a trip like that before. So it might be that there is a market for taking people to do sporting activities when they travel. Yep. So you know, out of Europe, you can do all sorts of micro things. Like if you're interested in 17th century Italian history, there's probably a tour you can find around that. And while that's micro, micro niche, which isn't necessarily our cup of tea, um, there's all sorts of things that we can identify to be able to do in the future. Mm-hmm. So what legacy do you want Intrepid to leave? Uh, look, I think for us it's it's important to leave a legacy of uh, acting by example, by, by showing that we can um, travel responsibly. That, that's part of it, but also be a, a responsible company in the broader sense in the fact, fact that we're, you know, we are carbon neutral. We do, um, we do act on things that we believe in. We will hopefully become a B corporation. So, so those sorts of things and can be seen that we, we can do good in the world um, as well as you know offering uh, a fantastic product. Mm-hmm. And I guess more and more we're, we're looking at doing uh, activities that are that are benefiting uh, local communities. So a lot of what we've done in the past is is doing things with local communities but very small scale. And just this year in uh, in Myanmar we've created a, a project in a small village, in conjunction with uh, the NGO Action Asia, and that is helping them to create a number of uh, services around tourism so the whole community can benefit from tourism rather than just a few people or rather than outsiders coming into that community and getting all the benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck with that one. Um, Tell me, so taking that and where you're transitioning to, what advice would you give to anyone that was starting in business, not necessarily travel, but wanting to be a responsible entity, a B Corp or conscious business, an impact business? I think having a, a clear vision of what you want to do is really important and, and thinking long-term mm-hmm. because um, if you're thinking short-term, you just won't be making the right decisions. and. Um, and everything you do has got to be thinking about about the longer term, not trying to get a benefit in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, while I say having a vision of what you want, most definitely having a purpose of, of why why you are wanting to do it and why you're going to be going to work every day and why people would want to come and work for you rather than someone else. Yep. And having that stakeholder, I guess it's going back to conscious capitalism, Four pillars, essentially, but having that um, stakeholder orientation to be thinking about, well, what is the benefit from the the people I'm going to be interacting with rather than just what's the benefit to me? Because ultimately, if if everyone you're dealing with um, is benefiting from what you're doing, it's going to come back and benefit you multi-times ahead for you. Mm Mm-hmm. And finally, if you were to recommend a book for someone to read, what would it be? Can it be fiction or non-fiction? <laughs> um, 
a, a really good uh, non-fiction book is around conscious capitalism. It's called Firms of Endearment. Right. And it's by um, a, a, an academic called Raj Sisodia. Yep. And he he compares, you know, the um, this, the books born, built to last and uh, good to great? Yes. So what he's done, he's compared companies that he's identified as being conscious companies uh, to the good to great companies that have been very successful. And he's been able to show how the conscious capitalistic companies have been much, much more successful than those good to great to companies, both in the shorter term but much more so in the longer term in that 10 to 20-year uh, time. And and that book really um, goes into a fair bit of detail about what the why these companies are conscious and what it is that makes them conscious and why why they have been successful. Mm-hmm. Okay. I will put that in the show notes as well. Is there anything else you'd like me to put in the show notes? Oh, is it? There, there is um, a book about B corporations. Yep. Um, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's something like a guide to B corporations. It's very short, a very quick read, and is fantastic to have a good understanding of what being a B corporation is all about. Okay. I will put those in. Thank you very much, Jeff. I really appreciate your time. And thanks for sharing so much. You've done some fantastic research. (laughs) I'm trying to do that. It's, um, It's just, yeah, it's interesting just to see where businesses have come from and where people can go. And I'm inspired by the fact that you guys have, didn't necessarily start off as being a responsible impact business, but have very much consolidated that and working on that. And that just inspires me that you can be big and humble (laughs) and that's to me is it's just inspiring yeah so thank you very much thanks for joining our conversation a little secret whilst researching for this interview i came across one of the tours intrepid travel does and it's now on my bucket list and that is to travel around the world in 365 days so i'm putting it out there it's on my bucket list I admire the work that Intrepid Travel does and their commitment to considering all stakeholders and the impact travel has on them. A few of the insights I gleaned from our conversation today. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. If you haven't got your culture right, you have no hope of implementing your strategy. Two, think long term and don't compromise for the short term gain. Three, when taking on partnerships, pay attention to the culture of your partner and yourself and make sure your values are aligned. And finally, I love the research outlined in the book, Firms of Endearment, where it demonstrated that conscious businesses outlast and outperform those that aren't conscious. Please share your insights from today's conversation and support the Intrepid Travel Foundation. Links are in the show notes. You can contact Jeff through Twitter on at Jeff Manchester. Now, he spells his name G-E-O-F-F-M-A-N-C-H-E-S-T-E-R. And once again, the links are in the show notes. To help spread the word about the awesome peeps making a difference using business as a force for good, would you please share and view The Toxic Fox Show on iTunes or Stitcher? And if there's a person you'd like me to add to the interview list, 
please send me an email on hello at thetoxicfox.com. You'll find a link in the show notes. Finally, my gratitude goes to Vince Jones for the music, to the team that helps me pull this together, to Jeff for coming on the show, and to you for listening and reviewing our show. Till the next episode, thank you to all the conscious business entrepreneurs who continue to give a damn about the impact they make. 